Good morning. I am Lauren Anders Brown, an independent documentary filmmaker. Being behind the camera in over 40 countries has resulted in hours, days, terabytes of footage. So much of what happens to make a shoot possible ends up on the metaphorical cutting room floor. Most of my editing used to take place in planes, trains, or whatever available coffee shop had a decent filter single-origin coffee, and always using the hashtag todaysoffice. Now, I am picking up the scraps, reviewing old interviews, and scrolling through my social media to give you a behind-the-scenes look at what it is like to travel, produce, film, direct, record, alone, as my own correspondent. It's February, one of the colder months in Bangladesh, where I had spent most of the beginning of 2018. On the most eastern border of the country with Myanmar is Cox's Bazaar, the world's largest natural beach, and also the world's largest refugee camp. For nearly my entire lifetime, this border has been crossed by a group of people called the Rohingya, who are from the most western part of Myanmar, called the Rakhine State. Myanmar, formerly known as Burma, was once a British colony, and after receiving their independence, they were taken over by the military. The official language in Myanmar is Burmese, and the religion is Buddhism. The Rohingya, however, spoke neither the national language nor practiced the religion. Being considered non-citizens because of these two ethnic differences, they have been persecuted for over 30 years. On August 25, 2017, over 600,000 of them sought refuge in Bangladesh, and the area of Cox's Bazaar now hosts nearly one million Rohingya. I would arrive four months after that overwhelming influx, living on the outskirts of the camp, oddly in a high-rise hotel that wouldn't be out of place in many other parts of Southeast Asia, with glassy floors, elevators, large rooms with air conditioning, and sometimes even a sunset view over the Bay of Bengal. I had got used to it by the time my friend Laura arrived towards the end of my stay there in February. She was floored, and also honestly a little embarrassed. Her budget at work was quite strict for accommodation since she worked for a small organization. I had already been staying there on and off for the last month and a half, so I was able to share my larger organization discount with her. I'll never forget how she kept looking up. It reminded me when she came to visit me in New York, that automatic tilt of the chin looking up at the buildings. It was the nicest place she said she had ever stayed for work, and then went on to give me the laundry list of places to validate it, one of which I'm pretty sure included a non-functional house in Mali that may have also been missing some essential furniture, like a bed, for example. Having two beds in both our rooms, we collapsed onto the two beds in my room to catch up for a little. I first met Laura while filming with her in Sierra Leone in 2014. We learned that one week we were very much made from similar stuff and kept in touch following each other as careers and countries changed. When I first learned I would be going to Cox's Bazaar, Laura took quite an interest and she began spinning into action a way for us to be reunited in our work for a week. Laura is someone who, when she puts her mind to something, anything is possible. The next morning... I began my usual routine of going down to order breakfast, but this time with Laura to show her the ropes of navigating breakfast in Bangladesh. First, 
chili pepper is considered a vegetable. Very important to remember. Therefore, if you try and order anything as a vegetarian, which I do often do while I'm traveling, you will get chili pepper. And it's not just a little chili pepper, but a lot of chili pepper. The most difficult part for people like me, whose spice threshold is painfully low, is the chili peppers are small and look almost identical to green string beans. Not that they use a lot of green string beans in Bangladesh, but they look like them. If you have something that looks like green beans in Bangladesh, it's probably chili. So every morning, I would have to say to the smiling chef, may I please have a veggie omelet with no chili? Sometimes the smile would fade at the no chili, but often they would nod their head, put aside their disbelief that anyone would want anything without green chili, and make my omelet. Second, Bangladesh is very much a tea country, and the only coffee to be found anywhere is of the instant kind. I am a New Yorker. I have the inherent ability to consume six cups of coffee a day, and no, not of the instant variety. It just doesn't do it for me. Laura humored my coffee concerns, although they didn't seem to affect her in the same way. Just me. Laura, Lucy, our translator, and myself, the L team, set off from the high-rise hotel to the camps for the hour-and-a-half drive to the camps, and that's plural. The entire spans of the camps can take as long as three hours to travel by car to the border with Myanmar. About half an hour to 40 minutes, depending on traffic or agricultural crossings, is spent traveling along the beach. As we make the turn off the beach road to head inland, we pass a field that serves multiple purposes. I've seen elephants grazing on it to cricket games being played on it in the past. This morning it's early and empty. We get stuck behind a truck though, with a back bed overloaded with bamboo, a common sight in the camps, since the Rohingya are not permitted to use any permanent supplies for their shelter. It's a symbolic reminder of their status here as not being permanent either. Bamboo is the best compromise, but being behind an overloaded truck on a single road for close to an hour is enough to make anyone contemplate the permanency of life if one bamboo shoot was to fall backwards through our windshield. We pass a wooden desk out in the open along the side of the road with some officers milling around it. It's the checkpoint for the camp. The largest and oldest part of the camp is Kutupalong, very much resembling a market town with a main street. This is where the Rohingya first started to flee over 30 years ago, before the ban on permanent structures, so most of the buildings here are made of concrete and similar to other areas I've seen in Bangladesh. The deeper we drive into the camps and out of Kutupalong, we transition from a market town to a lunar landscape. This land used to mostly be agricultural land, and so the hills and valleys were left, and whatever could be grown in both was grown. Nothing was flat or level. When the Rohingya arrived, they had to work with what was here, and so homes made of bamboo and black garbage bags cling to the hillsides. Living in a valley isn't much more favorable, because of the flooding during monsoon season. It looks as impossible to live in as it is to actually live there. We find ourselves in the camp called Gentoli. I've been here before, but only to the health clinic at the entrance. To go further into the camp, I had to sign into the logbook. After I wrote my name, before I could leave, the officer said, Write your religion here. I had no problem writing my name or showing my passport or my ID badge, but 
I was strangely uncomfortable with writing my religion to enter a camp full of people who had fled religious persecution. Put in that situation, it made me make a decision on my religion I had been grappling with for some time, because I wanted to write what was true. So I replied, What if I believe in all religions? He smiled, tilted his head to the right while shrugging his shoulders. So I took that as his permission to write in capital letters, A-L-L, in the column. I smiled and felt an unusual weight lifted from me as we entered Gemtoli Camp. One of the many reasons I was looking forward to filming with Laura was because we'd be looking for different stories, quite literally looking for them, since we had not prepared any in advance with the partners on the ground. The Rohingya camps are the most overcrowded camps I have been in to date. The shelters leave little breathing room, and every pathway feels like you're walking within the tent-like structures rather than between them. It leaves little space for living, but in our case, little space to casually engage with potential contributors. A woman spotted us and could sense our uneasiness and invited us into her shelter as if we were her long-lost neighbors. All of my previous work with Rohingya had been focused on women and girls, but none as old as 60. It was refreshing to hear an elder perspective on the crisis. She shared with us she had been back and forth three times between Bangladesh and Myanmar, or Burma, the country's former name as it's called by the Rohingya. We are coming here to save our life because they are torturing us very much in the Myanmar house. Uh, when we are coming in Bangladesh, they take our, because they have arrested our some relatives and someone are killed by the military. And also we are across many hilly areas and there's many hills. And after crossing the hilly areas, we are coming in the shelters of the Napa rivers. And then we make a boat by the banana trees and make it look like a boat. And we cross the rivers uh, and come in Bangladesh. When we are coming in Bangladesh, we, we never take anything, uh, even a single dresses or any coping pot and anything. Uh, we carry, we have to carry the, our little children or who are uh, and to carry them, we are shell, we have a shelter in my legs and hands and everything. If we remember this, I think we if we if we do better, if we die in here because our journey was very difficult. Mom. My very recent religious experience upon entering the camp was still present with me while we were interviewing Tsunami. So I wanted to hear about her feelings about her religion and her thoughts on the religion of others. Uh, the Burmese people think they are the Muslims, uh, all the Muslim, uh, Myanmar Muslim and the Bangladeshi. Because their religion is Muslim, their language also looks like Bangla. 
we are coming in Bangladesh to the to make the situation is very clear and peaceful because they are actually asked for the uh, religions and if we uh, we want to live together live by the different religions in the Myanmar so they're coming so do she feel it's important to respect other people's different religions yes it's important um, can she tell us why she thinks it's important? Uh, in the world, religion is the higher position. So we have to respect all religions because you are made of the Almighty. Everyone is made by the Almighty, so you have to respect the Almighty and every people's religion. Can you tell her I agree with her? Can you say I agree? I think she's right. I remember my eyes welling up at this point trying not to cry. She had so poetically put some of the thoughts and feelings that were racing through my mind as I had put pen to paper and write a lifetime of my understanding of religion that morning in three letters. What matters is not the word used, but the humanity behind it. And Tsunami, in all her wisdom, taught me that. We could have stayed in her home the entire day, although despite the kindness and incredible conversation, it was unbearably hot, and I was embarrassed to say that. I couldn't stay in Tsunami's home the entire day as much as I'd like to. We continued on with a little more love and kindness as we met more people within Tsunami's community. Before we exited the camp, I wanted one more perspective I hadn't heard from in my time there. The men. Most men gather in tea shops, and upon purchasing some fried snacks that looked like falafel, but was more, of course, cooked with the sneaky, spicy green chili, I left them for Lucy to enjoy. I was expecting a few men, who may also be interested in those spicy snacks, to join us, and I was surprised and overwhelmed when the entire tea shop was overflowing with men willing to engage with us as we listened to their viewpoints, fears, and asked how we could pray for them. Okay. And then um, what about, how do they deal with the trauma that they experienced in Myanmar? Myanmar government terrorists. Actually, Myanmar government is a terrorist. They agree we are not the Myanmar peoples. They tell us we are the Bangladeshi peoples or the Arkan. We are living in Arkan states. But how we are to save life, um, save our life, we are coming in here, but not to recover our traumatized. Okay. Yet not they forget the forget situations. the situations. They want to they, they, they want to live here. They want to return that's con their country because of the they have a lot of uh, land land and money and other things are available in the in uh, the failure circuit left in the left in, left in the Myanmar. So if um, if we could if we could pray for something for them, what would they want us to pray for? Allah has a 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 Allah has a
We pray from to Allah who are help us and they give a long life in their uh, uh, in art and they are be happy in the and and we back to Myanmar and with our rights because uh, uh, 1982 we are, uh, lost we, are our? The, we are after the 19 uh, 1982 we lost our nationality in Myanmar we find uh, this again with a few more clicks of the camera shutter we had to say shukriya thank you in the Rohingya language, and leave the camp in order to make the curfew. I had already spent over a month in these camps and still felt like I had so much to learn about the Rohingya and what they could make me learn about myself. To see for yourself what it's like to live in the world's largest refugee camp, watch my film Shanti Kana, narrated by Ashley Judd on Amazon Prime. And that's it for today. Back next week with more from my correspondent. Do join me.